Good. Well, it is incredibly exciting to be with all of you here in this place gathered together for us together to explore the incredible unfolding story that God has revealed to us in scripture. I mean, we, we need to remember that nothing that we just sang about, nothing that we know about our adoption as children of God, our soul rescue, our, the reality of our future, who we are, who God is, we, we don't know any of that if God didn't bother to reveal himself to us through his word, right? So, so this is a really big deal. It's, it's not just a, a book with some good life lessons in it. It is everything we know about us and about God and about how we relate. And we get to explore this. We get to dig into it. We get to unpack it so that we can understand the realities of how God functions with us, who he made us to be, and all the other things that come with that. So this is really, really exciting. And on that note, that is exactly why we have spent over a decade now traveling through the story of God. From the very beginning, in Genesis chapter 1, where we are created into the story, and then watching that story unfold throughout the Old Testament as God reveals himself to us and his story to us through the people of Israel and through the interactions with multiple different people groups throughout that journey, into the Gospels where we discover Jesus and who he was and what he's come to do, out of the Gospels into the book of Acts, which really is the documentary of the, expo- uh, of the exploding of the early New Testament church and the movement of the gospel, the redemptive story, the redemptive reality of God. And we followed that story as it expanded from Jerusalem outward. Most recently, we've been traveling with Paul uh, as he carries the gospel. And we find ourselves with Paul in Macedonia. He's come from Ephesus to Macedonia, if you remember, to look for Titus. Because he sent Titus to Corinth with a severe letter. And in Corinth, Titus didn't return to Ephesus. So Paul figured they stoned Titus and buried him in the backyard. I got to go find him. He goes to Macedonia, which is north of Corinth, uh, north of Achaia. He finds Titus there. Titus gives a good report about that severe letter and its impact on the church in Corinth. And Paul writes the third letter to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians. We know it as 2 Corinthians because it's the second letter we have access to. And, and we have been sitting with Paul at the desk as he writes 2 Corinthians, exploring the extraordinary beauty of Paul's unpacking of the gospel and its implications in this letter and how those implications affect our lives personally and how they affect the way we live our lives publicly. And so it has been an incredible journey. And we have come to the end of that letter. So you would imagine, as I would, that we get up from the desk now with Paul. He heads back out the door and we follow him back into the book of Acts as he continues his journey through whichever thing he's going to go do next. Except that... While we're sitting at this desk, as Paul finishes 2 Corinthians, before he really makes the next move in the unfolding uh, chronological story of the book of Acts, he sits and writes another letter. He now writes a letter to a church he's never visited, a church he didn't plant, a church that he's writing to in preparation for a visit, preparing for a major shift in his ministry focus, and it is the book of Romans written to the church in Rome. And I gotta tell you, man, 
I have waited my whole life to preach through the book of Romans. I really have. This is an incredibly exciting letter, an amazing letter to unpack with gospel wealth like you will not believe, uh, and I cannot wait to get into it. However, before we enter into the book of Romans, since we're really not going to go back into the book of Acts at all before we enter into this letter, we do need to take a week, uh, get out of the house from where we're sitting with Paul, get back on the streets, look at where we're at in the context of the story. Otherwise, we run the very real risk of this letter just becoming another sequenced letter in a sequence of letters, information that's interesting, that, that gives us some good principles, but we miss the, the real power and purpose of this letter placed within the context that Paul is writing it and why it is so important, not just to the church in Rome and Paul's time, but also to us. So we're going to spend a little bit of time today kind of regrouping on the story so far, regrouping in the book of Acts, kind of going, oh yes, this is what's going on. This is everything we've learned along the way. This is where we are. And this is why the book of Romans really, really, really matters. Okay. Why Paul is writing it now and, 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 and how that plays out. So where does our story begin? Well, in order to really remember how the book of Acts plays out, we got to start at the very beginning as we often need to do to remind ourselves of God's great story that he's revealed to us. And that begins in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter one, we are shown that we have been created by God with incredible purpose. God created us, the human race, in Adam and Eve with two central purposes. One, to know and experience God without any hindrance, without any obstacle, to know the fullness of his love, the fullness of his protection, the fullness of his light, of his revelation, of his freedom, to essentially exist in the basking wonder of God's glory without anything standing between us and him. We were created for that extraordinary freedom. And in that relationship with God, we were created not only to know him, but also then to become an image bearer of God, a reflection of him. We were created in some ways in his likeness so that as we engage with one another, that we can actually make him known to one another. God makes himself known to us as he is, and then he makes himself known to us through our stories. It's incredible. He created creation to shout his invisible qualities and powers at us as we shouted them back to all of creation and to each other, creating a symphony of the glory of God. This was to be our life. The enemy of God came into that picture and convinced us as a human race through Adam and Eve that God had forbidden us to eat of the fruit of good and evil, the knowledge of good and evil, because he wanted to protect himself, not us. He wanted to protect himself from us knowing what he knows, from us discovering our own divinity and pursuing our own story and abandoning him. And so he was controlling us and enslaving us. If you eat the fruit, you'll know what he knows and then you'll be like him. That's what you want. Adam and Eve bought into that lie. They ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil and they did not discover divinity they did not discover their own wondrous story. They discovered exactly what God told them they would. Sin entered into our story, into all of creation, and brought with it death. And from that point forward, we as a human race began to become what Solomon describes later on as people chasing the wind. Grappling with the lives around us and the relationships around us and the circumstances around us to try and either become the boss pursue our own divinity, because if we're the boss, then we're in charge, then we're cool, right? Nobody here wants to be anybody's slave. We all want to be the boss. And whenever we're made to submit to anyone or anything, we get ticked, don't we? I mean, you won't admit it because you're a Christian, but it's true. 
You were ticked as kids because you had parents. You're ticked in the husband-wife relationship because of all the stuff that goes on there. You're ticked in the workplace until you're the boss. And then you're not so ticked. And that is the pursuit of our divinity. Or we're pursuing things that will fill our souls where the emptiness is left behind because now we have broken relationship with God and everything is hindered and we cannot have right relationship with God outside of his redemptive story, which we'll get to in a second. And we cannot image him. Our purpose is lost to us. This is where we found ourselves. And yet as we traveled from Genesis onward into the Old Testament, we discovered that though we abandoned God, he never abandoned us. His story does not end with our insanity. His story begins, his story of love and mercy and grace begins where our insanity begins. And he begins to demonstrate in the Old Testament a pursuit of us despite our insanity. Throughout the Old Testament, we watch as he chooses a people for himself, shows himself as protector and guide to those people, shows himself to all of humanity through those people, and he establishes a sequence of events through the people, their rescue from slavery, the giving of the law, the giving of the sacrificial system, and then the pursuit of those people to the promised land into a place where they can live in his presence uniquely despite sin and death, and then through that entire thing, through the judges and the prophets revealing to those people and to all of us, there is a plan coming that's going to blow your mind. And when the fullness of redemption is realized, you won't know what to do with yourself. We came out of the Old Testament with all that information in our hands and we entered into the Gospels. And at the beginning of the Gospels, we met Jesus Christ, born of a virgin into a little Bethlehem town, into a quiet space, totally seemingly invisible and yet miraculous things around his birth. Angels, people coming from the far east because of a star, shepherds in a field, crazy cool stuff. And we quickly discovered in the gospels that Jesus was no man being born by God to help us. He was God himself born into flesh and blood to redeem us, to buy our story back from its disastrous horror. And we followed Jesus with his disciples, as we watched him live his life, share his teachings, and we realized, oh my goodness, we are watching the very reality of redemption unfold. Jesus said to his disciples at a certain point that his kingdom, which he brings with him, is going to invade this planet's death and darkness and it's going to overcome. That was good news to us because it seemed until then death and darkness was invading everything light. So we had to stay away from unclean things because they were going to invade our space. And Jesus said, no, 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 no. My kingdom is going to invade the darkness and you're going to come with me while we do it. So he shared with the disciples, remember, that his kingdom was like a mustard plant. Mustard plants in those days when you planted that dinky little seed in the ground, that thing grew like a weed, and if you didn't watch it like a hawk, it took over the entire garden. So you knew about a mustard plant. If you plant the thing, teeny seed, giant bush, garden dead, because that thing just takes over everything. And so he said, the kingdom of God's kind of like a mustard plant. It seems like a little teeny tiny seed planted, but if you blink your eyes, it consumes the darkness. And then he said, here's another way to put it. It's like leaven and bread. You get this giant pile of dough that you're going to make this huge thing of bread. And then you take a teeny bit of leaven and you're like, and you're like, scientifically, that doesn't make any sense. You need leaven in all of the bread, but you don't know what leaven does, right? Once you put a teeny bit in, it, I don't know how, but it just consumes all of it. And before you know it, leaven is everywhere. You can't separate it from the bread. And he goes, that's what the kingdom of God is like. So I'm going to advance and you're going to come with me and we're going to see this thing change. As you would have, if you were a disciple, you would have assumed Jesus is going to go and do this great redemptive work. You're going to 
be in partnership with him in that you're going to be with him. He's going to overthrow the Roman government, establish his throne in Jerusalem and reign forever. And you're going to be reigning as kings by his side, being the spectators of the greatest redemptive work in all of history. What the disciples could not have anticipated, just as we would not have if we were with them, is that Jesus' plan for this great redemptive work did not include him doing it while on this planet and us just being people watching it. But he had a much bigger plan than that. In the end of the Gospels, Jesus is arrested and he is crucified and he dies. And all of us, along with the disciples, just go, Oh my gosh, what just happened? Rome is stronger than God himself except for the fact that three days later we actually kind of came back from the dead. So not only are you like not, not disappointed anymore, you're now super excited, right? Because you're like, alive, he was powerful. Dead, we thought we lost. Back from the dead, it's superpower. And so you're like, okay, it's a done deal. It's a do- he's walking in, he's taking over, it's done. And so we come to the end of the Gospels in Matthew in the beginning of the book of Acts, and they kind of they overlap just slightly, Right? Jesus at the end of the gospels in the book of Matthew is ascending into heaven and he speaks some things to the disciples and that also happens in the beginning of the book of Acts. And here's how the book of Acts begins, the documentary that we're currently in. Jesus gathers the guys outside of Jerusalem and he says, all right, boys, here's the deal. The guys are like, are we going? Are we, are we, are we gonna establish the kingdom right now? And he's like, no, that's, that's not a time for you to know. Here's what I am gonna do though is I'm gonna go away. And they're like, uh, that wasn't part of the plan. And he goes, no, 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 that was exactly the plan. Because I'm going to make you my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I'm going to empower you to do this great work with my very power. The Spirit of God is going to reside in you. He is going to seal your future redeemed. And he's going to empower you to your mission restored. And you are going to live crazy lives carrying the light of the kingdom of God into the darkness and invading. So, what happens after that? Grab your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Acts chapter two. In chapter two of the book of Acts in verse one, we see the beginning of the emergence of the early New Testament church and the story of us. Acts chapter two, verse one, page 1007, if you're using one of our Bibles, or if you brought your own Bible, or you have a smart device, Acts chapter two, verse one, page 1007. Here it is. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This tangible, giant, uh, physical thing happens where the promise that God made happens in front of them. And so visibly that there was no doubt for them. They're like, oh, oh, this is crazy cool. And when he's done, when the Spirit of God is done with them, they actually start speaking. And what we realize immediately is as they speak, their ability to bridge the great divide of language is removed, which is what the gospel needed early on. 
And so they start, they start being able to utter all these crazy cool languages. In fact, we see the fullness of this where Peter, just right now after this, goes out and preaches the gospel to all these people in Jerusalem. And they all come from all over the known world for, for the Passover and Pentecost. And so as they gather together, they speak tons of different languages. And Peter preaches in one voice and everyone understands him. So they're all like, I don't understand you. You don't understand me. But you understand him and I understand him. That's not possible. Like, welcome to the new way. So Peter preaches the gospel and thousands come to know Jesus. They encounter Jesus, they encounter the gospel of Jesus and they gather for the very first time as the early New Testament church, the context that we know. And as they gather, we see the first implications of what happens when a group of people encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ and are full of the spirit of God. A community emerges like nothing we've ever seen before. It's described in Acts chapter two, verse 42. Listen to this. Acts chapter two, verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. (coughs) And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. An amazing community is born in the book of Acts. A community that begins to shout to us, this is what it looks like when people gather who know and follow Jesus. And so we begin to think, oh my goodness, Is this what it's going to be like? A community of the miraculous, relational miracles, physical miracles, manifestations of miracles, sharing of resources, everything just miraculous and wonderful and beautiful. But right after this happens, shortly after this community is born and they have the favor of all of Jerusalem, we immediately see something else happen, right? In the next few chapters in the book of Acts, the Sanhedrin, the council, the Jerusalem council, who are the powerhouse of the Jewish world of Jerusalem are deeply threatened by this new emergence of thousands of people following Jesus because it threatens the very infrastructure of what they've established and where they draw their power from. Because remember, the early church here in this space was Jewish. These were Jewish people coming to know Jesus. And so the Sanhedrin calls Peter and John in and goes, what what are you guys doing? This is blasphemy. This is bad. You can't keep doing this. And if you keep doing this, this is going to go badly for you. And immediately we see not only out of this beautiful community, is born beauty and is born miracles, but also brutality begins and martyrdom is on its way. This is not going to go well on many fronts for the people that are going to dare to continue to carry the gospel into a world that sometimes embraces it as the greatest freedom on planet earth and sometimes rejects it as the most terrible darkness and will fight it with everything they have. And so we see the emergence of a theme that is going to follow the rest of the book of Acts and should continue to follow our story. If you're going to follow Jesus and you're going to be a carrier of the gospel, preaching the gospel with your words and acting out on the gospel with your lives, there are going to be miracles in your journey and there is going to be martyrdom in your journey. You are going to have some of the most freeing, wondrous experiences of your life and some of the most difficult, disastrous things of your life because by definition, we are invading dark places and dark places do not like to be invaded. So it's not always going to go well. And so we see this theme emerge.
Stephen is literally going to lose his life in just a few chapters in the book of Acts. But despite this theme, despite this difficulty that is emerging out of this beauty of community, where we see the brutality of the world around us, the attitude of the men and women in this place are amazing. We see it specifically in the attitude of Peter and John the second time they are called before the Sanhedrin. So now the Sanhedrin's getting ticked off and they're like, we've, we've asked you once, now we're gonna start consequences. You know, we do this out with our kids. I asked nicely the first time, I'm gonna ask one more time, this time not nicely, and third time, consequence, death. Okay? That's exactly what happens. The Sanhedrin calls them in, Tells them, you keep doing this, we're going to beat you, and we're probably going to kill you. And after this, in chapter 5, verse 41, this is their response. Take a look. Then they left the presence of the council, (laughs) this is so crazy, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. So, It's more than just saying they tolerated the brutality that came with carrying the gospel. It's hard, but I'm going to do it anyway. They rejoiced in it because they had seen life now change as a privilege to participate in the redemptive process with God. So Jesus, when he came to this planet, lived uncomfortably. Then he had to die and be crucified in order to redeem our story. That was a necessary part of redeeming brokenness is to enter into the brokenness and to be broken by it. And Jesus was the one that said to his disciples, if you're going to follow me, you are going to take up your cross as I did, and you are going to follow me with that cross, meaning that we are going to participate in that suffering when we have to be redemptive. And these guys getting that, when suffering is now no longer the absence of God or God not paying attention to me because God's supposed to make my story happy, suffering is a privilege I have from God counted worthy to participate in redemption. That's big. And so they were like, this is our attitude. You want to beat me? Beat me. I will just count it more, more, more joy. You want it to go badly? Have it go badly. I will count it more joy because I should not have the privilege to suffer as Christ suffered to redeem anything. I don't have that kind of ability, but the Spirit of God has given it to me. And this was the attitude of these people. Out of this beautiful community and the brutality of the external world, we see that the gospel was not thwarted at all. The people did not bow down. They chased after because they had encountered Jesus. They chased after the mission of the gospel. But then in the book of Acts, it wasn't just external. It was internal. Remember in chapter five and six, we have a community so beautiful. And as soon as you have that, the sharks come in, right? So Ananias and Sapphira was the beginning of that story. And Ananias and Sapphira were like, this is a sweet community. These people are so naive. They like sell all their stuff and give it to each other. I bet we can set up business in this place and extract all sorts of stuff. So in order to do that, you know how sales works. You got to find out what the person is and then become what they are. Oh my gosh, I have a sister just like that too. That's so sweet. I don't even have a sister, but I'm going to say that because I'm in sales. And so uh, Ananias and Sapphira come into the community and they're hoping to deceive the apostles and use the community for their good because from an outside source, not knowing that God is actually real and supernatural, you might think this community is a fabrication of human endeavors that has created a naive space to take from people. Well, Ananias comes and God deals with it this way. He kills him. And so he's dead. 
Sapphira comes just a little while later and she doesn't know that her husband lied and that God killed him. So she lies and God kills her. And we go, oh, how can a good God do this to these poor innocent people? And we realize that God was establishing in the mess of what is humanity whenever a beautiful thing emerges, immediately the sharks swim in and start corrupting. He was protecting the infancy of the new early New Testament church. Just like with a baby, when a baby's three or four days old, you don't go to pig on the pond, you know? You don't walk around like, come, breathe on my baby. Come on, she's fine, she's two, two days old, she'll be fine. Now you're like, oh, oh, every germ is an enemy. And then when they're two, you're like, eat the sand, suck on the passy, who cares, right? <laughs> Unless it's your first child, then you still think that they're going to die, but they won't. By child four, you're just like, man, just don't even get a passy, just eat sand. So, just like that, God protects the infancy of the early New Testament church. But something else emerges in that, that the people watching from the outside suddenly realize that what's going on in this community isn't just natural, it's supernatural. And when you mess with this community, you don't mess with the naivety of humans, you mess with the power of God. And so God uses a giant messiness to produce beauty and actually a greater respect for God and for his community is born. Then there's some widows in the community and they're supposed to be taken care of. So the Greek widows don't get taken care of nearly as well as the other widows. And so the widows start ex- you know, complaining as they ought to because they're like, there's favoritism going on inside this community. And, and then they go to the apostles and they're like, what about you guys? Uh, we see you guys popping in and praying all the time and like studying the word, but we're actually hungry and, and it's not being, t- and it is all good to call this community wonderful God community, but what about our food? Right now, it may not have gone down quite as badly as that, but I suspect it probably did because we've been around humanity for a long time. And so you see internally in the community, this beautiful Acts chapter two, verse 42 community, ah, kumbaya, is now complaining and ticked off that there's favoritism and the apostles aren't doing their job and all that. And so it's messy, folks. You know what's beautiful about that? You would have expected God in the book of Acts to go, I'm done with this stupid. This is stupid. I give you the spirit of God. I, I, I give you languages to spirit, preach. Thousands come and you give it 10 minutes and you all are complaining. But God doesn't do that at all. Within the mess of community, he produces another redemptive reality in the deacons as they emerge. He goes, well, it's not difficult. The community is a bit messy. Get some people that love me and have them begin to serve in a, in a formal capacity. So the deacons are born. And deacons become an incredible part of the biblical community in leadership. But the deacons don't just serve meals. Stephen, who's one of the deacons, we meet him. He begins to preach the gospel boldly in the city, which means, listen to this, you almost miss this in the book of Acts, but that means that the baton is passed from the teaching and preaching of the gospel from the the 12 super apostles to the deacons, which says the preaching of the gospel is not just for the super apostles, it is also for the deacons, for the leadership of the church. It's others that do it. The baton is passed. Stephen begins to preach the gospel. He is martyred for that preaching, so we know how dramatic that was. And in the brutality of that moment, we see the church expand throughout Jerusalem. And God uses the massive community to produce his redemptive ends. What an encouragement to us when things get messy around here. And then what happens? In that passing of the baton, the baton suddenly passes. Once Stephen happens, it passes almost immediately to a bunch of guys that have no business carrying the gospel. Paul suddenly emerges. Philip emerges. You've you got Mark emerging. You've got B- B- uh, um, uh, Barnabas emerging. Uh, we, we meet all these characters that come out of the woodwork and we're like, Who, who's this guy? Who, who's this guy? He's not an apostle. He's not an apostle. And they all start emerging and they all are carrying the gospel. 
And you're like, oh my goodness. This is, this is about more than the leadership of the church. This is about many of us carrying the gospel out. And we suddenly realize the calling may be bigger than we thought. The invitation to participate in the redemptive work of the gospel may be bigger than we thought. And then it happens. Oh my goodness. You remember in the book of Acts what happens next? Here's what happens. The gospel flows over the walls of Jerusalem and spills over into Samaria. Philip, actually, one of those guys, unlike the characters, he carries the gospel to Samaria. Grab your Bibles and turn with me real quick to um, chapter 8. In chapter 8 and verse 4, it shares a story starting in verse 4 of Philip going to Samaria, preaching the gospel to the Samaritans. Now remember, Samaria was where when Jesus wanted to go through Samaria, every time the disciples were like, can we go around? Because, I mean, the soil is dirty in Samaria because those Samaritans have walked on it and they're dirty. They're not like dirty, like physically dirty. They are just like dirty inside. And then, so this was the Jewish attitude toward the Samaritans because they were kind of a half-breed, sort of a mix of races. And they're like, they're not Jewish. And the Samaritans thought that the temple of God was actually in Samaria. So that ticked the Jews off even more in Jerusalem. So it was very much like, we're the real deal. You're the fakers. Go away. And they didn't like them at all. And now Philip preaches the gospel to Samaria. And you would think the Samaritans would reject God, God kind of like in Jonah. You know, he preaches to the Ninevites and then they reject him. And then God wipes them off the planet and that's awesome. But except the Samaritans didn't reject God. They actually embraced the gospel. So it's almost unbelievable. So Peter and John go, oh my gosh, if the Samaritans have come to know Jesus, we gotta go and gotta go check this out. So they go check this out and then this crazy thing happens. In chapter eight, verse 17, look at what happens. Chapter eight, verse 17. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the spirit. Okay, you may not think this is a big deal, but it's a big deal. Here's why, remember? The receiving of the Spirit of God does two things. It authenticates our salvation, seals us to salvation, and it empowers us to participate in redemption, right? So he empowers us to be on mission, and he authenticates or seals or solidifies our future redemption, our salvation. This means that the Samaritans were not just to be recipients of the gospel message and respond to it emotionally, but their salvation was authenticated and their participation in carrying the gospel was authenticated. The Samaritans are not just to be a small part of the story. They are as much a part of the story as the Jewish people in Jerusalem. And the gospel moves out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. Now, while this is going on, other things are happening too. Peter gets some dreams from God where God starts preparing him not to hate the Gentiles, right? It's like, okay, look, here's the deal. The Gentile pagans, you gotta stop treating them bad, okay? And all their unclean stuff, it's no longer unclean like you thought of it because I've now redeemed things. So Peter has all these dreams where he's wrestling and he's like, I don't wanna touch it. And he's like, you're gonna eat it and that's it. And it was sort of weird. In the meantime, there was a guy named Cornelius who was a centurion in the army of Rome in the Italian cohort. So he is, he is Roman military Gentile pagan right? But he loves God. He doesn't know God, but he loves him. And so God speaks to Cornelius and says, I want you to go find this guy named Peter and he'll tell, me, tell you about who I am. In the meantime, he's giving Peter dreams to say, when the, when the Gentile comes to you, do not be mean to him. Okay. And so he's setting this all up and Cornelius and Peter meet up. Look, it's all in chapter 10. Look in chapter 10, verse one, it says at Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all of his household. So he didn't know who God was, but he feared him. And then here's the deal, right? Cornelius goes to Peter. Peter preaches the gospel to him and look at verse 44 of chapter 10. 
Peter's preaching the gospel to the household of Cornelius. And it says in verse 44, while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. And the believers from among the circumcised, the Jewish guys, who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. So here's what this means, folks. The book of Acts is helping us understand very quickly that the early New Testament church was no longer a Jewish thing or a Jewish Samaritan thing. It was a Jewish Samaritan Gentile and anything else thing. Anyone who encountered the gospel, regardless of creed or color or background or religious realities, they were all in the same space. The gospel was yours to receive. When you received Jesus, the Holy Spirit was yours to receive. He authenticates and seals your salvation and he empowers you to mission. This mission we are called to in the book of Acts chapter one, verse eight, to be witnesses throughout the world was not a mission for super apostles, was not a mission for the leadership of the church in Jerusalem. It was not a mission for the Jews or the Samaritans. It was a mission for anyone and everyone that encountered the gospel because we all get the Holy Spirit and we're all on mission. And that's giant. And then from there, we saw that very mission unfold. As more and more people encountered the gospel in the known world, they went out sharing the gospel and more and more people encountered the gospel. And what was born was the gatherings of the people of God. So we follow several of the missionaries, including Paul from Antioch into Galatia and Lystra. We see the church born there. Then from Galatia and Lystra, he goes out going west, north of Asia Minor, south of Bithynia to the Aegean Sea. He crosses over into Roman territory. We hit Philippi, we hit Thessalonica, we hit Berea, we hit Athens, we hit Corinth. Churches are planted in each of those. Doesn't go well, doesn't go easy. I mean, they're beaten, they're, they're imprisoned. It's, it's still brutal, but the gospel moves beautifully. And despite the brutality, nothing slows the gospel. Nothing slows the men and women on mission for the gospel. And so we see the gospel birthing small communities and these communities become churches. We see the gospel move from Corinth back across the Aegean Sea south around the Mediterranean to uh, Ephesus. In Ephesus, it continues to expand and then Paul's now back in Macedonia uh, with Titus having written 2 Corinthians and beginning to write the letter of Romans. And we see the gospel moving its way through the known world like a mustard plant or like leaven beginning to permeate every space. And as it does that, we realize that God's plan all along for the gospel to move through the entire planet was not for Jesus to do the great work and us to be spectators of his great work of redemption. It was for Jesus to restore our God-given purpose to image him by being carriers of light, life, and freedom, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And he would do it through this crazy organism called the church. You remember Jesus said that. Peter and him were hanging out one day with a couple of the guys and he said, what do people, who do people say I am? And they said, oh, some call you Jeremiah and Isaiah and whatever else. And he said, who do you say I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to Peter, Pete, on that statement of truth, on that declaration, on that reality, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not stand up against her for she will carry the kingdom of God into the world. You see, what we see at this stage in the book of Acts is that the church is emerging as a carrier of light, life, and freedom. But we are still new in the book of Acts, and so we don't know how to do it exactly. And you know what God does for us? He begins to have Paul and Peter and Jude and a bunch of other guys 
write letters. Write letters to the churches to do what? To remind them of the gospel, to clarify the gospel, to help them understand the implications of the gospel in their lives, and to remind them of the mission of God that they are on. Every letter is going to do the same thing in a unique context, in a unique way, with unique clarities, but it's going to do the same thing. This is the gospel. This is who God is. This is its implications to you personally, to you for mission. Now go live it out. That's going to be every letter. I mean, I've already given it all away. Except each letter is going to do it with new nuances and new clarities so that by the time we're done with all the letters, there will be nothing we need to know about the gospel that we haven't already read. And that's why the letter of 2 Corinthians matters and the letter of Romans matters and the letter of 1 Corinthians and Thessalonians and Galatians because each letter faces another opposition of the gospel. Legalism on the one side, lawlessness on the other. Um, Misconceptions about how the gospel plays out in life and behavior and church and space and community. Everything, it brings the gospel to the table and says, here it is, clarification, now go live in it. Because God established us as the carriers of the gospel and made his church full of the Holy Spirit, the power that would move the gospel into all the world. His statement about that mustard plant has absolutely shown itself true. And it will continue to do that until his story is done and all things are made new and every work is finished. I want to show you a map. It's a quick little visual. It's going to run through from the time Jesus sent us out as a church while he was on this planet to 2016, you'll see a world map and you will see the movement of the gospel and Christianity make its way across the map. And you'll see in the top left-hand corner a little date that's just running all the way from zero to 2016, over 2,000 years, and you'll watch the emergence of great powerhouses that should have sunk the gospel, but how the gospel quietly, beautifully, like leaven, invades every space of this planet all the way to 2016, Take a look at this. incredible but the story is not over is it because there are still parts of the world that do not have the light of the gospel yet right here in our midst and around the world and that is our story 
as much as it has been the story of the church for 2,000 years, we have our piece to play now. And in 2055 or 3011 or 4012, when they're in another little church somewhere watching a new map, and the map doesn't end at 2016 but continues to move, what will it show? Well, it'll show our part. It'll show what we were part of, what we participated in, where God allowed us to be the carriers of light, life, and freedom. So as we enter into the book of Romans, do not think for one second it is just simply a book of great theology unpacking new principles that we can live by. It is a letter designed to give us greater clarity of who we are, of who he is, of the gospel, to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to live our lives not for our kingdoms but for his, carrying not our stories but his and becoming part of the grand story of God. Are you ready for the book of Romans now? Because I am. But it'll have to wait till next week. Let's pray. God, thank you for the beauty of the story we get to participate in, the part we get to play, that you would have bothered to allow this story to unfold over all these centuries and millennials so that people would be born and people would be saved until the very last person that you bring to yourself has come to you. What mercy you have shown the human race. What beauty you have allowed us to participate in, in allowing us to be part of the redemptive story on this planet by not just being recipients of soul rescue and future redeemed, but participants in having our purpose restored to carry the gospel. Empowered by you, God, help us to live in intimacy with you, Spirit of God, through the disciplines of the faith that we might continually seek to be full of you and walk in you so that we might display the fruit of the Spirit and be great carriers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us not to try to convert or conform anyone to a religious experience so that they can be on our team instead of somebody else's and we can have the biggest one. Help us to carry the good news in the way we live, speak, act, and share so that people would know and see in us the beauty of your freedom, your light, and your life, the redemption you effect on our souls. Help us to become a church unafraid of dark places, hard places, difficult places, to invade the darkness, and when we suffer for it, to count it great joy that you have given us the privilege to share in your story. God, thanks for the book of Acts. Thanks for Romans that we are about to encounter and 2 Corinthians that we just did. Show us what we need to know that we might be great ambassadors for your kingdom, for your glory, and for your name. We love you, God, to you. Be the glory and honor and praise forever and ever. Amen.